This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Boy, you talk about one of the big bond deals of the year, Saudi Aramco, just extraordinary. They filed a $10 billion deal. Uh, then in the face of about $100 billion of demand this morning, they upsized the deal to $12 billion with very tight pricing. Uh, to help us kind of walk through kind of how this is playing out, uh, we welcome Tina Davis. She's a managing editor of Energy and Commodities for Bloomberg News and Molly Smith, a corporate finance reporter for Bloomberg News. They both join us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So Molly, just give us a sense of how you know, over the last 24 hours out of demand and the market is kind of shaped up for this for this monster deal. Well, I think uh, I was just having lunch with an investor and he put it really well that investors love to lend money to people who don't need it. And that is really Aramco in a nutshell here. This is a company that produces, um, what, $100 billion of EBITDA a year. I mean, it's just like the financials here are tremendous. And maybe you don't agree with a $2 trillion valuation that Saudi Arabia's government is aiming for an eventual IPO. But this is still by far the world's most profitable company. And um, whether you have you know, ESG concerns or with the concerns about Saudi Arabia's government, oil, whatever it may be, clearly that was not in the way of uh, all the orders that we saw for this deal. All right. So, Tina, that's a perfect place to bring you in because remind us what this company means to the region, what it, what it means to the country, Saudi Arabia, what it means to our country, the United States, what it means to the world, what it means to the oil markets. Yeah, I mean, Molly's right. This is an insanely profitable company. Yeah. If you think about the, just the profit numbers for last year, you'd have to add up all of the oil majors and then probably a Google on top of that just to get to the number that they're arriving at. So if you think about it from a macro perspective, look, this is a company that produces one out of every 10 oil barrels that are produced in the world. So uh, they have an outsized effect, not only on the oil price, but on sort of where the oil market is headed. So you know, they're part of OPEC, but if you're to ask anyone who watches OPEC, they are OPEC, right. <laughs> more or less. So, you know, whatever they do, whatever Saudi Aramco does, really drives pricing both in the short and the long term. So, Molly, just in terms of the pricing here, I was amazed when I came in this morning. I was looking at a chart that kind of showed these various tranches of this uh, issue, basically pricing right on top of the sovereign debt and it's just amazing. But this, I guess, in effect, is almost a sovereign company, if you will. They were actually able to bring the pricing inside wow. the sovereign curve of Saudi Arabia, which really speaks to where we saw the demand coming from in this deal and um, just how there are two different kinds of communities largely that we're looking at this. Um, I'll start with the investment grade um, investors, and those are the guys who would most likely compare a Ramco to an Exxon to a Shell and think, hey, like this looks pretty cheap. You know, this is like a really good value add for us. Speaking to, of course, the profits of this company, great deal, no brainer. But you look at the EM investor who is very used to seeing, you know, the Pemexes of the world and the Gazproms and where those will obviously price wider than the relative sovereign. And those EM investors are probably thinking, this isn't great value for me. But a lot of IG guys came out very strong today. So that really boosts up the demand for this. And Tina, help us understand the timeline here, because a year ago or so, we were talking about this IP, this was going to be the game-changing, Wall Street-shaking, money-making, uh, so many things sort of IPO. This is obviously a different approach. Uh, and as Molly alluded to, there have been a lot of political considerations that have come into play, at least on the outside. None of that seems to 
matter, but what are the implications for this mode of financing versus uh, you know, the IPO that we expected to see? Yeah, or does well, it? It's interesting. I mean, this is sort of a plan B for Saudi Arabia, right? They were looking to potentially IPO, as Molly said, a, a company that they believe was worth about $2 trillion. Um, they have delayed that in the face of a lot of things, not, uh, not, not least of which was some of the Khashoggi incidents and some of, the Wall, some of Wall Street's reaction to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, today's pricing and today's issuance is a, is a strong indication that all is forgiven, at least from the money side. Well, David Solomon, the yep. CEO of Goldman Sachs, yep. was in the region last week, I believe. Yeah, and we had Jamie uh, Diamond from J.P. Morgan actually speaking at, at one of their road shows. So if that doesn't give you a sense of how important this all is to Wall Street, then you know, you're not paying close enough attention. And the other thing to point out is, yes, this is a debt issuance. This is a different level of investor than would normally, normally come in for an IPO. But all the banks are jockeying to get that IPO right. money. And this is a chance to sort of, again, prove your bona fides and potentially get what probably will be in the hundreds of millions of dollars for, from fees to do the IPO in 2021 they're not talking about. So, Molly, when I, when I saw that $100 billion demand uh, headline come across this morning, the old investment banker in me said, sell more bonds, make more money. How come they didn't sell more bonds? Because presumably a lot of these proceeds are going to be used to, to pay for this acquisition they're making. It was really clear then from uh, where this ended up coming in that, uh, that the company was prioritizing pricing over size in this case. So um, clearly you look at orders of $100 billion, this thing could have gone a lot bigger than $12 billion. But uh, I think it was really important for the company here to price their uh, debt cheaper than the government pays. And um, like Tina was saying, you know, like the, for the banks involved in this, like this is, could be a hugely lucrative IPO if and when it comes. And you want to prove as a banker that you're going to follow through on what's important to the company here. So when that IPO comes rolling around, they're going to be knocking on your door. So, Tina, you said all is for, all seems to be forgiven. Anything that could derail this from a company perspective? Derail the IPO? Yeah, derail the IPO, derail this deal. Like everything, all cylinders seem to be firing here, right? Look, if oil prices are $20 a barrel, this IPO will not happen, right? right? I mean, you have to try to strike while the iron is hot. This debt issuance shows that this is a very good time to be talking about oil with Brent prices at $70 again. Yeah. Um, You know, I think unless there's a change in government or, you know, a change in the, a radical change in the oil price, um, you know, we will see these plans move forward because this is part of Prince Mohammed's overall effort to diversify the economy of Saudi Arabia, and they need a lot of money to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Great stuff. Uh, Always on top of it, Tina Davis, Managing Editor of Energy and Commodities for Bloomberg News, and Molly Smith, Corporate Finance Reporter for Bloomberg, both here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. ESG, Environmental Sustainability in Government Governance. This is a big part of investing, particularly institutional investors. I'll tell you how important it is. If you go to one of the most hit uh, functions on the Bloomberg Terminal, that's FA for Financial Analysts, for any security, uh, it will pop up all the stuff you know and love, income statement, balance sheet, cash flow statement, but there's also a tab there for ESG data, really ranking how different companies perform on that important uh, score. To help talk a little bit more about this, what it means for the investor community, we welcome Guillaume Mascato. Guillaume is head of ESG Investments at American Century Investments. They're big, $167 billion under management. Uh, Guillaume joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Guillaume, I know you're focused on ESG. Just give our listeners a sense of 
how big this market is. Are investors, to what extent are investors really paying attention to this type of investing? Absolutely. Well, first, thanks for having me. So uh, according to the most recent uh, figures, the ESG and sustainable investment market in general um, is approximately 30% of global AUM. So we believe that uh, this number is quite big and uh, no longer um, constitute uh, a, uh, a fad, if you will, in the, in the investment uh, space. And uh, there's projection that this is going to continue to grow as more and more asset owners um, look into ESG in terms of uh, um, you know, their, um, their investment solutions and also their retail investment. Right, a lot of them are starting to pay attention to that. So, help us understand how much of this is about exclusion, how much is about what you're not investing in, and how much of it is about what you are investing in, and has that balance changed, and will it change further? Sure. So, um, I, according to the most recent numbers, again in Europe, for example, exclusionary screening, right, or otherwise known as sector avoidance, so removing um, those vice sectors like tobacco, uh, you know, um, um, also alcohol and gambling and so forth, um, it used to be the most prevalent approach out there. But we're seeing more and more take up now for ESG integration, right? So, not an exclusionary approach, but just a systematic integration of ESG risks and opportunities into the investment process, given the importance of allowing ESG with the fiduciary duty that a lot of investments, uh, investment managers and asset owners have, we think that this um, form of uh, ESG investing will continue to rise in the next uh, five to 10 years. It's interesting. I first heard about ESG maybe 10 or 12 years ago, going over to Europe and talking about the stocks that I covered, media and entertainment stocks, and I'd pitch one of my names and you know, a portfolio manager in Paris or Frankfurt would look at a screen and say, nope, I can't touch it. Right, it doesn't right. screen well in ESG. So I came back to New York and saying, what the heck is ESG? So I had to get <laughs> real smart real fast. So it looks like, it, at least in my experience, it kind of, I saw it first in Europe. Are there certain countries or certain parts of the world where it's more prevalent? Absolutely. So right now, the fastest growing markets um, for ESG is uh, Japan. Um, in fact, uh, with our strategic partner, Nomura, we've been working very closely in that market, specifically on the um, um, sustainable impact investment space. Uh, following uh, Japan, there's Australia and New Zealand that are growing quite fast, and also the United States. Uh, we actually believe that the United States um, is too often seen as a laggard in the industry, but we believe that uh, it's going to change. And once the U.S. will turn, well, we believe that it will turn quite fast. So take us down another level because I feel like now companies are having to answer to institutional investors, companies who are outside of either the businesses that they're being screened out exclusionary-wise, but also, you know, they're not in the renewable business directly or, you know, they're not in clean tech or, or something like that. An everyday consumer company, how are they starting to answer this structurally to investors? Yeah, so in 2018, that was one of the main trends that we saw is that uh, issuers, right, whether public debt or public equities, are starting to respond to this quite fast. Uh, they understand that uh, ESG mining investors need more transparency. They need to understand how these companies are managing the issues to which they're exposed to. And indeed, in some cases, you might have companies like in the oil and gas sector that are saying, well, look, I mean, we're not going to change the business tomorrow, right? And they also have a fiduciary duty to their own investors to use discipline, to use capital that is in a disciplined matter. Um, so we think that um, more and more of these uh, companies, whether they're involved in mm-hmm. renewable energy, clean tech, or that are still focused on, say, you know, sectors like 
oil and gas or alcohol, tobacco, um, are just going to increase the organizational transparency in order to provide investors with a clear sense of how these companies are positioning themselves to manage those risks and whether or not they're doing um, um, anything on the strategic level to navigate properly those trends so that the companies themselves can continue to ensure um, their long-term competitiveness and, of course, ensure the financial viability of their investors. Just real quick, 10 seconds. How about performance? Does ESG companies outperform or underperform? That's a good question. The data is mixed. Uh, We believe that integrating ESG into the investment process does not hurt performance and enhances the due diligence process. But at the end of the run, picking the right stocks, having very strong conventions really matters here. Great stuff. Uh, Guillaume Moscato, he is head of ESG Investments for American Century Investments here in New York City. They oversee $167 billion, really illustrating how some of the biggest investors in the world getting behind this, running the numbers, and helping understand what's underneath all of this. Thank you so much for joining us. All right, it's Miller time indeed. In the White House, apparently. Josh Green, national correspondent for Bloomberg Business Week. He's got the story. It's in the upcoming edition of Bloomberg Business Week, and it follows on a an overhaul, shall we say, uh, that's going on as it relates to immigration policy here in the United States. He, of course, has tracked this administration from the campaign onwards. He joins us from our 99.1 studio there in the nation's capital. Mr. Green, always good to catch up with you. Good to be with you. All right. So spin it forward for us, because as your story says, and as that song alluded to, it's Miller time, (laughs) because Stephen Miller is ascendant, uh, it seems, in this shuffle that we're seeing. Yeah, newly ascended. I mean, you know, the big story here this week is the Trump's ouster of Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen, who he felt wasn't doing enough to stanch the flow of migrants to the borders, uh, wasn't able to bring about Trump's desired uh, speeding up of deportations, uh, and generally wasn't sort of carrying out the vision that Trump had campaigned on about how he's going to build a wall, shut the southern border, uh, and send illegal immigrants back to their home countries. Uh, Stephen Miller was, was part of the architect of that strategy in the campaign. He was Trump's speechwriter at the time. He's now one of, if not the most influential senior advisors in the White House. Uh, And as I wrote in the piece, uh, Nielsen's ouster, as well as the ouster of other important Homeland Security officials, has Miller's fingerprints all over it. So, Josh, it just kind of, you know, the the ouster of uh, uh, Nielsen just kind of raises the issue, I think, that the bottom line issue is the, really, the options for President Trump and his administration as it relates to the southern, southern border seem quite limited, aren't they? Absolutely. And what's so interesting is yeah, I did a, a Bloomberg Business Week cover story on Stephen Miller back uh, three months into the administration, back in 2017. And I went back and read that story in light of Nielsen's firing. And one thing jumped out to me. Miller has the view, which Trump shares, that you don't need to pass new legislation in order to limit immigration, in order to shut down the border, that essentially it can be done through existing law. And at the time, back in 2017, Miller told me that the key position in the government was the DHS secretary, what Nielsen did. Miller told me, you know, there's enough authority, authority, statutory authority on the books for the person in that position to essentially accomplish what they want to accomplish. So 
in Miller's view, which is Trump's view, they ought to be able to accomplish these things through sheer force of will. Now, there are a lot of judges out there, a lot of critics, a lot of Democrats who disagree. uh, But I think it helps shed some light on why it is that Nielsen left. She didn't get the result they want. And Trump and Miller apparently still believe that if they can get somebody into that position uh, who will do their bidding, uh, regardless of the law, that that maybe they'll get something more along the lines of the results that Trump promised. I think that's a, a a big question mark, and courts might think otherwise. But I think that is ultimately the reason for Nielsen's firing. And so, who could that person be who could step into this role, and candidly, a number of other roles that are open within that department? Well, a name I'm hearing tossed around a lot is former Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, mm-hmm. who is an immigration hardliner. Even among hardliners, Kobach is a hardliner, but he's a favorite of Miller. Uh, people like Steve Bannon with ties to the White House who have very hawkish immigration views. You know, He's someone, I think, who shares Miller's worldview that you could do more within existing authority to shut down immigration than Trump has managed to do so far. Uh, Kobach is a highly controversial figure, including among Republicans. So it's anyone's guess if he could get confirmed to this position. But that's the sort of profile we hear being discussed as the White House uh, goes about figuring out how to try and fill some of these new vacancies. So, Josh, let's assume that President Trump and uh, Stephen Miller uh, get somebody into that position that shares their view and pushes a much more aggressive interpretation of the existing statutes. How would, I guess, the opposition uh, really rise up? Would it be via the courts? Would it be Congress? Where would we see it first? Well, I think it would be both things. I mean, number one, Democrats now control the House. They have oversight power. And I think you're going to begin to see investigations into, uh, you know, why it is, uh, you know, subpoenas looking at White House communications around issues, uh, for instance, such as Trump's desire to shut down political asylum laws or end birthright citizenship, the kinds of actions that he believes he can take summarily that courts by and large have struck down, uh, you'll begin to see some of the backstory coming out there. I think the other route, yes, very much, is is the courts. We've already seen this with some of the attempts Trump has made uh, to shut things down. Uh, what's puzzling to a lot of Trump critics, including some supporters of immigration restrictions, such as uh, Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley, is that uh, by most people's reading, there really isn't a whole lot more you can do under existing laws to shut down immigration than Secretary Nielsen was already doing. There doesn't seem to be uh, a magic bullet anybody can point to, but Trump and Miller uh, apparently believe otherwise and are going to try and maneuver somebody into that position uh, who can be more aggressive than Nielsen was. So, Josh, I think it would be uh, journalistic malpractice if we had you, the author of The Devil's Bargain, on this program and didn't ask you about Steve Bannon in all of this. Obviously, you've mentioned him a couple times as a key sort of figure, at least rhetorically, uh, in all of this. Does some of this uh, bear his fingerprints? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, Bannon has always been in the camp of of immigration restrictionists who you know want to be more aggressive, do more to shut down the southern border. Uh, I think it's also no coincidence he's a close ally of Chris Kobach. Kobach uh, ran for Kansas governor and lost. Um, Bannon was very much a part of his campaign. So you know you have a. a, a a crew of people who I think include Miller, Bannon, those types of people who are really leaning on Trump. And by the way, I would include some some 
Fox News figures, Sean Hannity and yeah. Lou Dobbs among them, as, as being very influential in shaping Trump's worldview. And I think Trump was impelled to move in part because he was being criticized on these shows because uh, rather than the shutdown of the border and the end of the migrant crisis, we're seeing it now elevate to, to, to levels higher than it's ever been in the past. And I think Trump worries that if he can't do something to solve this problem, then he might jeopardize his reelection. And, and Josh, that just you just brought up a, a great point, which is, uh, you know, We've seen migration at the border uh, just actually increase despite the aggressive stance taken by the Trump administration. Is there a correlation there? You know, there may be. I mean, one of the things that that Trump and Republicans have done um, that experts think might have exacerbated this surge is they've they've cut or said they're going to cut aid to Central American countries, which is where a lot of these migrants are coming from. You know, as things get worse, as as uh, a lot of these migrants feel compelled to leave and travel to the southern border. If conditions in their own country are worsening, if they don't have that kind of aid, uh, then perhaps that's helped to increase their numbers. But I think the real reason, and, and this is this is what puzzles a lot of Trump's critics on immigration, is that uh, by U.S. law, if these migrants arrive at the border, they have to be taken in. Uh, simply building a wall will not keep them from coming in. Our laws say that they're allowed to apply for asylum. Uh, oftentimes they're released into the interior while they wait a court date. So it's not clear that just building a wall or getting somebody tough in this position is going to solve the problem that Trump is trying to solve. Josh Green, national correspondent for Bloomberg Business Week, author of The Devil's Bargain. It's a must read to understand how we got here in this administration and the 2016 campaign. He joined us from our 991 studio in D.C. Check out his stories in the upcoming issue of the magazine and on Bloomberg and Bloomberg.com. Yes, I gotta have All right. Well, this story, we've been talking about it all afternoon because everyone is talking about it. I'll just read the headline. College grads sell stakes in themselves to Wall Street investors. If that's not going to get a Bloomberg customer to click on it, I don't know what will. Claire Boston is the author of this story. She joins us now. This is a story. It's featured in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week, but it's on the terminal and on .com today. So, Claire, tell us about the inspiration for this story, because this is a bit of a white whale for you. This is something you're really interested in. Exactly. Um, So I am a debt reporter by nature, uh, and one of the things that I look at is um, the market for uh, bonds backed by student loans. Um, And we know all about the student debt crisis and just what a big deal that has been that it has been for students and now it's really affecting millennials abilities to do things like buy houses um and so i was really intrigued about alternatives and that is how i kind of stumbled into this world of income sharing agreements which some colleges are experimenting with as a potential way to let students take out less debt so basically what you do is um instead of taking out a loan you might borrow ten thousand dollars it's basically gifted to you temporarily um but the catch is that you have to pay that back uh using a percentage of your future earnings and so how prevalent is this practice? You, I mean, it sounds like it's just a, a great idea, securitization of my future earnings, if you will, uh, as opposed to taking out uh, a loan. So how prevalent is this? This is a really small market right now. Um, we're talking tens of schools doing this, um, but it is growing fast. A lot of large public universities, I have been told, um, have been looking at this as a potential offering that could potentially help them draw students. Right now, uh, the biggest name out there is Purdue. Um, they have done more than 700 contracts, um, totaling uh, in the tens of millions of dollars, and it's been around for about uh, two years there. 
One of the interesting things with the charts that caught my attention, in part because I was an English major, uh, is that this is actually broken down according to uh, the way Purdue does it. The percentage, the share of your income owed depends on your major, right? Which potentially has to do with your future earning potential. Exactly. They do really look at that um, and say, okay, if you're an engineer, we project you're going to make probably more than an English major out of school and maybe for your entire life. Um, when they're coming up with those The sound numbers, you hear is my parents being slightly disappointed, <laughs> yes. but go on. I told you so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, when they're looking at those numbers, they don't want to burden anyone with too big of a payment. So um, when they're looking at a projected future income, they're guessing, okay, we can probably get all those payments in the, you know, call it two to $300 per month range. So, you know, students are still going to be able to afford food. Right. Well, Claire, what happens if a, if a student gets laid off or something? What is that, uh, you know, with, with, with a loan, I still got to pay it, right? But with, is this different? Exactly. Um, so this is different. Um, basically, if you were to get laid off and you were out there looking for a new job, um, you are essentially in a bit of a grace period. So you would not have to pay until you find a new job. Um, and if you were to take yourself out of the workforce, you know, for example, if you wanted to take some time off to take care of a child or something like that, it would go into deferral. Um, the students who I spoke to really liked this about it. They were saying, you know what, if I have a loan, um, I'm definitely going to have to pay, but at least this gives me a little bit of breathing room if something bad were to happen. And so what other options do people have at this point? Because as you say, you've been looking at this uh, from other angles beyond just a staggering amount of debt, because as you alluded to at the top, that's what people are faced with right now. You know, there are a lot of colleges out here, um, and not a lot have really aggressively looked at how can we keep costs down. Mm -hmm. um, so right now, students are looking at maybe this income sharing agreement if your school offers that. But otherwise, you kind of have the usual collection of government loans, private loans, parent plus loans. ISAs are not designed to compete with government debt. That's going to be kind of your lowest rate. Sometimes it's subsidized. Um, but they are designed to be really competitive with, you know, those private student loans that might have a student paying 10% annually. Right. Right. So if, I, if I'm a student, what's the attractiveness for me? Is it is it a lower cost for me all in to go this route versus traditional loan package? You know, it's really impossible to say exactly what it's going to cost you unless you were to have a job offer in hand, um, which most juniors and seniors do not have. Um, a lot of people that I spoke to say that they basically like kind of the insurance of not having to make a payment, um, not knowing that they have this big debt load hanging over them and that it's really tied to their future potential. I, I'm guessing you have gotten a lot of feedback uh, on this story today. Wall Street uh, certainly paying attention to this, in part because, as we joked about a little bit earlier, it's both Wall Street, you know, productizing uh, future uh, future employees in, in some ways. You know, these are some of the folks that they may end up recruiting. So it all sort of turns on itself here. Definitely. I've heard from um, people asking if their children should look into this, and right. uh, my answer is I don't know, maybe. Um, <laughs> I've also learned that um, this is new in America, but other parts of the world are already doing versions of this. Really? Oh, interesting. interesting. Yeah. Yes. I spoke with a guy in Germany. He said that this has been an option for a long time if you're going out to get your MBA or yeah. get another professional degree, so maybe we're just catching up. Well, and it is interesting if you think about sort of professional degrees, there are ways of, you know, sort of tuition reimbursement and things like that where companies will essentially say, look, we'll pay for you to go to grad school but you got to yep. come back or and if you don't then you got to repay us and all those different things it's a great great story claire boston with the most read story on the bloomberg today college grads selling stakes in themselves to wall street investors check it out it is on the bloomberg terminal and on bloomberg.com featured in the upcoming issue of bloomberg business week magazine I'm 
I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for your drive to the close. And as we get closer to that close, coming up in uh, about 11 minutes now, let's check in with Jen Robertson, Associate Portfolio Manager for Wells Fargo Asset Management. Joining us on the phone from London. Good evening, Jen, I should say. Good so, day. How, how are you? I'm doing very well. So uh, thanks for joining Paul Sweeney and myself. We're here in New York. You're in London, as we said, and clearly front of mind, especially as we go into some meetings tomorrow that uh, Prime Minister Theresa May has, is Brexit. Let's start there. How are you looking at this, especially since it's on every front page when you uh, walk out of your flat every morning, I would imagine? It is. And the interesting thing about Brexit is that you can have a room of five people and ask everybody in the room what's going to happen, and everybody has a different answer. I think that we as investors are having to do what companies are doing in the U.K., where that's just positioning yourselves in a way that you can take advantage of opportunities if a hard Brexit happens and also be positioned in case there's more of an easy Brexit. Right now on Friday, it appears that the can should be continue to be kicked down the road, but if there is a hard Brexit, there should be quite a negative reaction within the markets. Um, but I am waiting at the edge of my seat to see what happens. <laughs> we have a front row seat, that's for sure. So, Jen, you know, one of the things we got from the IMF today was obviously just confirmation. Granted, it was in a rearview mirror type fashion, but confirmation that uh, you know global economic growth is slowing. Uh, how concerned, and, and including Europe in, in particular, what is your view of the kind of European economic outlook and kind of how are you positioning uh, your portfolio at Wells Fargo? You know, we're cautious on Europe. There's there's weaknesses throughout the Eurozone, and it's structurally quite a challenged market at this point. You have debt issues in Italy. You have labor issues going on in many countries. You have a rise of populism. I think at this point in time, to be cautious as an investor is prudent. But being cautious doesn't mean run, you know, f- a flight to cash. It doesn't mean um, going completely defensive. It instead means being completely aware of where your risks are within Europe and not adding to incremental risk there. So you'll want to be really upgrading your portfolios, I believe, at this point in time. You want to go to quality. You want to be gravitating towards those companies that are big, global companies that regardless of where they're headquartered, you could see them operating out of the United States. You could see them operating out of Asia. That, I think that's the best way to be positioned in this environment. So you coined a phrase, or at least I'm giving you credit for it, uh, in some notes that you and your team sent along, which is that this market is, quote, delicately euphoric, which I love. Yes. Um, and yes. so, A, what exactly does that mean? And B, given that, how how do you make maybe different stock picks than you would in a more just plainly euphoric market? You know, when something's delicately euphoric, it, the market continues to grind higher. There continues to be macro risks out there, but the market's been overlooking quite a lot of them. The trade negotiations are ongoing. That can change at a single tweet. It can change in negative news. Um, 
So if there is any negative news that does come out, the euphoria that you've seen in this market that's gone up 15% year to date, you could see that come out quite quickly. And I think the best way to be positioned, again, is, is similar to how we're approaching Europe, mm-hmm. where we want to be positioned in high-quality companies with management teams that have long-term horizons, long-term track records, and fundamental values for lever. Or, fundamental levers for value creation that they can take advantage of and pull. We don't want to be trading into companies that are only going to benefit from a secular tailwind or a secular driver or a cyclical driver. Instead, we want to make sure that companies are very well positioned going into an uncertain time. So that's the best way to position yourself in this environment. So, Jen, we're just about to kick off first quarter earnings season. And uh, granted, the the bar is very low. I think S&P uh, you know, first quarter earnings are, are negative four or five percent as the consensus. How are you viewing the first quarter earnings? What do you expect to hear? What do you hope to hear? And maybe what are some of your concerns? We're cautious going into the first quarter earnings. I think there's quite a difference between an earnings uh, detraction when you have that because of difficult comparables because of taxes versus fundamental issues uh, to growth. I think the great thing that's going to come from earnings is more clarity for investors, and that doesn't have to mean that it's good or bad, but more clarity and more certainty in terms of what management teams are saying, in terms of what they're seeing out there in the market. Um, I think that that will be helpful in investors such as myself getting more of a conviction on how the remaining part of the year is going to play out. So I think when you go into first quarter earnings, there's going to be some negative revisions. You've already seen some negative pre-announcements. I don't think it will fundamentally be as bad as people are worrying about, but I do think it's going to be somewhat of a come-to-reality type moment, and you might see sort of the wind come out of the sales of the market that you've had up to this point. One uh, sector I wanted to ask you about, Jen, was healthcare. Uh, we talk a lot about it. We talk a lot about it, especially in this sort of market, maybe a little bit uh, defensive. What, what would you think about healthcare at this point, and, and specifically even subsectors that might be of interest? Yeah, I think healthcare is very defensive. I think you saw it outperforming in 2018. Um, this year, it struggled as I think the worst performing sector year to date. A lot of that has to do with the euphoria that you're seeing in the mm-hmm. market right now. Um, there are some headwinds to healthcare right now. There's been a lot of discussion around the rebates for drugs. There's been uh, the issue with Medicare for all. But I believe that these headwinds are short term in nature, and that the underlying fundamentals of health particularly when you look at pharmaceuticals, when you look at medical devices, you've seen a significant increase in R&D over the past couple of years, and that is coming through into the market now. These are new products that are truly innovated and truly value-add and are bringing a different curative effect to the market. So I think you should continue to see those types of of stories perform well over the long term. Great stuff. Jen Robertson, Associate Portfolio Manager for Wells Fargo Asset Management, joining us on the phone from London. Some very interesting thoughts there. Uh, did want to bring you a headline uh, that crossed just while we were having that conversation, going back to a previous conversation. Saudi Aramco, indeed, selling $12 billion of bonds in an unprecedented debut, Paul Sweeney. I mean, it really captured the imagination of the market. And Tina and Molly earlier really told it well. Yeah, I think this is going to give certainly the the government and and Saudi Aramco a lot of confidence about future financings, whether it's another bond offering to finance uh, uh, this acquisition further or 
you know, as a lot of people are anticipating, perhaps an IPO of Saudi uh, Aramco at some point in the future. Amazing. An amazing turn over the past six to eight months, given yes. all the political headwinds, some of the economic headwinds we've heard. Um, but, you know, as Tina Davis rightly put it, you know, Saudi Arabia and Aramco, part of OPEC, but it sort of is OPEC <laughs> when it comes down to it. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.